Thank you, David. Um, am I on? Yep. Um, I'm always disappointed every Sunday that David actually doesn't do the dance. Anybody else with me whenever the kids said the worship song? David always, every Sunday I'm disappointed that David doesn't do the worship song. So I think as a congregation we should make him do the, the, the dance of the first worship song with the kids. Everyone agree? Agreed. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, okay, let's... let's uh, uh, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Jasper. I used to be the youth worker here for, for seven years uh, back in the day. It's great. This is, this is my home church. I, I love this church and it's a privilege to be speaking here this morning. Um, if you're new with us or if you're um, visiting, we've been going through a new theme um, in our morning services. We're, we're looking at word and spirit together. This idea that, that we have the word and spirit and whenever the word and spirit come together, oh, it's, it's real and good and alive and Jesus speaks. And we're looking at Luke, uh, the gospel of Luke as we dig into word and spirit. And, and this is just the third week and I will be looking at Luke 3 and Jesus' baptism today. But before I read Luke 3, I want to give you an analogy that I hope helps um, whenever we see the big picture of what Luke 3 is about. Some passages in Scripture are easy to understand, and we get the meaning quickly, and the application is simple. Other times, we need to dig deeper into the meaning and understanding. With all Scripture, we need to get the context and the backstory as it helps Scripture impact us more as we understand the meaning behind it. Um, and we all know that. Uh, and uh, um, I, I was in London this week and um, for meetings, and, and London is a fantastic city. I love it, but I don't know my way around London. So I, I'm the tourist with the phone, and I've got Google Maps out on my phone, okay? So I'm not looking up. I'm, I'm walking around looking like this. Everyone knows what Google Maps are, or uh, they know what sat-nav is, is in, your, in your car if you've got sat-nav. But when we use Google Maps, we, we get this zoomed-out approach as we type in our destination. I am here, and I want to go there. And Google Maps, at the start, gives us this big overview. It's like, oh, I can see where I'm going. And then it zooms right back in to where you're standing and you've got a little arrow and you're here and all you can see is all the buildings all around you again. But you've got that zoomed out approach and then it goes right back into where you're standing and you just have to like walk and navigate your way around. Sometimes with scripture, it feels like we're in the middle of all the buildings, all the words right in front of us and we don't get to see the big picture of what God is doing in his story. And sometimes we get lost sort of in the streets of the text right in front of us because we don't know the backstory or we don't have the zoomed out view of what God is trying to speak through scripture as we read it. This scripture in Luke 3 is zoomed out picture of who Jesus is that we're looking at today. It's only a few lines, but it gives us a big picture of who Jesus is where God places him in his timeline. And we get, sort of like when you get on the London Eye and you can see all how the streets emerge. Oh, I didn't know that was so close to that. And we see the bigger picture when we're up higher. This scripture today is, is that zoomed out approach as we look at who Jesus is. So let's, let's read Luke 3 together. We're reading Luke 3, starting at verse 15. And, and we'll go, go to verse uh, 24. So let, let's, let's read this together again. Luke is trying to give us a big picture view of who Jesus is, and we'll dig into that together. So starting at, at, at verse 15, 
in Luke 3. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and with all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all, and he locked John up in prison. So this, the context is, this is John the Baptist, this is Jesus' cousin, and John has been preaching along the Jordan River for about six months, and he's calling the people back to repentance. It, it, it's a hard call. It's, it's actually a call of, of judgment. And he's been doing this for about six months, and thousands of people are coming to John the Baptist, who dresses really weirdly in camel skin and eats locusts. He's Jesus' cousin. They probably didn't know each other that well at the, through Scripture. They, they don't have many meetings until this point. But in the womb, Elizabeth and Mary, the, the babies recognized each other, if you remember the story. But here we have now John the Baptist preaching and baptizing people in the Jordan River. And even though it is a message of judgment, thousands of people, thousands and thousands are flocking to him from hundreds of miles to come and get baptized in the Jordan River. The verses we really want to focus on are, are these verses coming up, verses 21 and 22, the baptism and genealogy of Jesus. And, and Luke puts them together very purposely. Uh, we'll not get into all the genealogy today, but he puts them together purposely. So in verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying you are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased and then it goes into the, his genealogy and, and that's for another day when we read scripture it, it is always good to ask why uh, we should have the posture of, of why, why, why is he here? Why, why is Jesus saying these words? Why is God saying these words? Why is it in the Jordan River? Always as we read scripture, we have to ask the question why because whenever we ask the question why, we ponder why and God often speaks and gives us interesting and wonderful answers through scripture. So, so why here and why now? Why is this important and I think it's fascinating that the place Jesus chooses to start his ministry, the place where he kicks it all off is, is not with a spectacular miracle. It's not in Jerusalem in the center of things in the temple. It's not with all the powerful people and the high brows of society. It is on purpose amongst ordinary people whose hearts are heavy and they know their need of God. They have traveled here with a need and desire to repent and seek forgiveness. It is on purpose that Jesus wants to be there with sinners, in inverted commas, as they're called. 
He wants to be there amongst ordinary people. One of his names that Jesus will be given, a nickname that he will be given later on, is a friend of sinners. He doesn't just go into the water like out of peer pressure or uh, just because the rest of the people are doing it or just uh, because he's with the boys and he wants to be with the crowd. He doesn't do it uh, just because everybody else is doing it. That's, that's what the religious leaders came to do. They wanted to come and do it because uh, they felt they were missing out or they wanted to be seen to be more holy than what they were and everybody else was doing it so they better do it. Jesus wasn't doing it with that attitude He wasn't doing it with an attitude, oh, uh, I just want to identify with you, and, and Jesus does identify with us, and that's so important, but it's much more than that. It's much more than him just saying, oh, I've been through this, so I know what it's like for you to go through this. It's much more than that. He doesn't just identify with our humanness. He became human. He doesn't just identify with our sin. Jesus later on becomes our sin. It's not just that he identifies with it, he becomes it. So in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, God made him who had no sin to be our sin. God made him who had no sin, not just to identify and hang out with sinners, oh, I know what sin is. No, he became sin for you and me. You see, already the first act of baptism is Jesus going much deeper than just saying, I identify with you. Much deeper than that. You see, this is our Jesus. This is the man he was and the God he is. The very first part of his public ministry is to show off that he is one of us, that he walks with us, that he is for us, that he will do all that is required for us to have a relationship with the Father. His very first act is to say, even though I don't need to repent because he was sinless and had never sinned, even though I don't need to repent, this is a baptism of repentance, I will do all that is required so that we can have this loving relationship. Such humility and obedience. This is our Jesus. This is who he is. The baptism of Jesus is in all four gospels and that's significant um, and it's very significant because it is placing Jesus right in the center of God's timeline. From the beginning to the present and also to the end. So the gospel writers each want us to recognize that Jesus has always been there from the beginning of creation, that God has always wanted an intimate relationship with humans, and that God has now invested everything in making the right relationship possible in the presence and life of Jesus. So, so let's look at verse 21, and, and we'll, we'll sort of dig into this. When all the people were being baptized... Verse 21, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, Luke is the only one who puts that little bit in in the four gospels. It's obvious Jesus prayed lots, but he, he, he puts that in here. And as he was praying, the heavens were open. That little phrase, the heavens were open. Let's picture the scene. It's hard to visualize what that would have like, looked like, but both Matthew and Luke use that exact phrase. The heavens were open. Mark uses the heavens were split apart. 
So we're in this scene. Jesus is standing in the Jordan River. The heavens are open. We have to understand what is happening here. This is the inauguration, or some say the coronation of Jesus at the start of his ministry. It's a monumental moment. This is the long-awaited moment that has been predicted and prophesied. The anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, is here in our midst. And just at the beginning, and just while it will be like at the end, the heavens were split apart. The heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit is about to come. It's epic, it's huge. God has come amongst us. He's pitched his tent amongst us, as it says in John's gospel. He is a human being. It says he is about 30 years old in this passage. And he is with us. That little phrase, then I saw heaven opened, we actually also see in Revelation. Jesus is going to come again. One of his best friends, John, has, has, a, has a vision and writes down the revelation. That's the last book of the Bible. And, and the very same language is used in, in verse 19. It's on the screen here. Uh, sorry, chapter 19 of Revelation. It says this. This is John's vision as he sees Jesus come again in the future. It starts with this. Then I saw heaven opened. Exact same phrase. I saw heaven opened. And a white horse was standing there, not a dove. A white horse was standing there this time at the end. Its rider, Jesus, was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. Jesus is coming back. The heavens will be opened again like what has happened in this picture and and is this a precursor of what it might be, but it won't be a dove, it will be Jesus on a white horse, not King Billy. Jesus on a white horse, faithful and true. The heavens are open. Wow, we get to see that. The people got to see this here. Now the fact that John was baptizing in the River Jordan is also very important. Why? Again, ask why. Why is it important that it's in the River Jordan? Well, where did the people cross, the, uh, God's people cross to get into the promised land? It was through the River Jordan. Okay, so uh, what were they escaping from? They were escaping from slavery. They first had to go through the Red Sea with Moses and the waters were parted and they walked through on dry land. And then they walked in the wilderness uh, because of their rebellion and then to get finally to the promised land, not with Moses, but with Joshua this time, they get to walk through the Jordan River. It is on purpose that John the, Bapti John the Baptist is baptizing in the Jordan River. It's on purpose. It's a baptism of repentance, of remembering what we have done and saying there is no going back. I'm not going back to my sin. I want forgiveness. I don't want to come, I want to come back through the waters of freedom like they did. This is pointing right back to Exodus for the people. The people in these days would know this language. They would know the significance. That's why they're turning out in their thousands. I don't want to go back to Egypt, to slavery. I want to come back to God. So picture the scene, Jesus has come to John to get baptized, and in Matthew's gospel, John is like, like, what are you doing? You don't need to be baptized. You need to baptize me. I can't even untie the sandals off your feet. You have no sin. You shouldn't be getting baptized. You need to baptize me. But Jesus is like, no, no. This is how it should be. You baptize me. 
Jesus was and is sinless. He had nothing to confess, but because of his humility, because of his desire and passion to please and obey the Father and to make a way for us, he knows this is important. And so rather than being there like the religious leaders who felt they needed to be there just to be seen to be there, just to be seen to be doing the right thing, Jesus didn't need to be there. Jesus wanted to be there. Jesus wants to be in our life. Jesus longs to be with us. He doesn't need to, but he wants to be with us. He wants a relationship with you. Let's look at verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. I want to break it into two. Let's look at the first half. And the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. That little phrase. Uh, This is probably my my favorite wow one. This is like uh, where you're on the London Eye and and they all start, the streets start to make sense because you see a bigger picture. This starts to get a bigger picture now of who Jesus is. So in your minds, you know, have that zoomed out approach. We, we have Jesus in the River Jordan, which is significant in terms of the Exodus and the promised land and God's promised people and him being the promised one in the River Jordan. But we also have this language about Jesus coming again and the heavens being opened. Now, the people at that time didn't have that because John didn't have that vision then. But we have that now, that same language. Okay, this is Jesus at this time, but also he's coming again and the heavens will be opened again. But this verse takes us right back to creation itself. This verse takes us right back to the beginning. So let's read Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, the beginning. Genesis 1 and 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now a better translation is that the Holy Spirit was fluttering over the waters or brooding over the waters. And some, what, what flutters, I wonder? Um, well, it sort of gives it away, doesn't it? There, uh, in the days of Jesus, there, there was what was called the Targum of Scripture. And the Targum was really the translation of Arama- Hebrew into Aramaic. And that's what they would read in the synagogues. And they also put little explanations as they read it because lots of the people couldn't read. So as they read Scripture, the Targum, there was little explanations in it. And the Targum of Jonathan and the Targum of Jerusalem at this time says this about Genesis 1, which is just incredible. Um, It says, the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. The Spirit of God, this is the creation, fluttered above the waters like a dove. So wow, here we have the very beginning of creation almost reenacted in play with the three main players doing it again. The three players are the the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in Genesis, when they say, let us make man in our image, together let us, 
Trinity make man in our image. And here we have the Trinity in full view again. I love that we sung that song about the Trinity today. And, and the guys didn't know, well, maybe you didn't know I was speaking on this. But anyway, it's wonderful because as we sung that, here we have God, Father, and Holy Spirit initiating a new way, a new covenant with the Son. What Luke is trying to hit home is, this is Yahweh, this is God. The same at the beginning, the same now, and the same forever. This is the one true God right in front of us in action together. First century Jews would instantly understand this moment. They would recognize the distinct and clear parallels to creation with the Holy Spirit coming and, and fluttering over the waters and not the waters of creation, but here in the Jordan River and, and the Holy Spirit coming like a dove. They would know this language. This is God stepping into creation again. He has ripped open heaven. It's the Trinity showing up together. We have the Son of God emerging from the waters of baptism. We have the Holy Spirit anointing the Son. And then we have the, the voice of the Father speaking over affirmation and confirmation of the Son. Just as we have all three represented in creation, in Genesis, here we have all three represented here in Jesus' coronation. The proclamation of God's new covenant in Jesus. And what does the dove also represent? It's a question I'll throw. It's not a trick question. What, what's a dove represent? Peace. Okay, so some scripture is very simple. Okay, we don't have to dig much deeper than that. The dove, even before Jesus was born, everyone there would know that a dove represents peace. Here he is. He comes and he is the prince of peace. Peace. The dove comes back to Noah with an olive branch, doesn't it? From the ark. And Noah feels safe that it's time to go out. The dove comes and anoints Jesus at this moment and Jesus knows it's time. And he goes out as Prince of Peace. Second half of verse 22, and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. I love this. Now, now remember this account of what God speaks, these very words are in all four Gospels. If people did not get the symbolic context of the Jordan River, and if they didn't see the clear parallels back to creation, well, then they would most definitely know these words because these words are from Isaiah 42, one of the most famous passages in the prophets' uh, uh, scripture in Isaiah 42. And it says this, and um, before I come to it, I'll have another wee bit, because what Luke is trying to do here, remember, is this zoomed out view. Okay, hopefully you've got this zoomed out view. Um, it's meant to be a light bulb moment for the people at the time as he's writing to the Jewish people. This is meant to be a light bulb moment for them, going like, oh, right, I, I get who this is now. This is not just a holy man here or a, or a, a great teacher or a new prophet. This is far bigger than that. This is actually... Wow, this is the anointed one. This is, this is who we've been waiting for, for all the, this is God right amongst us. This is what has been predicted and prophesied. This is going right back to Abraham and Isaac and Psalm 2. But this passage from Isaiah 
42. It's called the Lord's chosen servant. Let's read it together and you'll see uh, the obvious links. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says this, look at my servant whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. All making sense? All fitting together? He will bring justice to the nations. This is that prophecy from Isaiah being fulfilled in front of everyone's eyes in the Jordan River. This prophecy was written over 700 years ago before Jesus was born by Isaiah. And here it is now, joining up the dots. I, I, I Google some research. It's, it's fascinating. There's over 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament, which he fulfilled all of them. It's, it's not just that they were just a few lucky chances or a few lucky guesses or something was written way back then and it just coincidentally just fell into place and happened. That, that does not happen. Some of you might think, you know, when your wife or one of your family members is pregnant, you can guess if it's going to be a boy or girl, and you've got a 50% chance. It's, it's not like that, okay? It's much, much more than that. So the mathematical odds of anyone fulfilling this amount of prophecy are staggering. This is the stats. One, one person fulfilling eight prophecies, okay? So eight things that were said about you, and then they actually come true in this detail. For, for that to happen with eight prophecies, it's one in 100 trillion million, Okay? for eight prophecies. Uh, uh, for one person fulfilling 48 prophecies, that's one chance in 10 to the power of 157th power, which is lots of zeros, okay? Uh, I'm not gonna write it all up. And then a person fulfilling 300 plus prophecies, I just don't even bother putting down the zeros, okay? It's, 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 it's impossible, but well, it's not if it's Jesus. Only Jesus. This has been planned by God. This has been prepared by God. This has been predicted by God. This has been prophesied by God, but most importantly, just not predicted and prophesied, fulfilled by God. This has been fulfilled. God has made a way for you and me. He's made a way for us. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son, whom I love with you, I am well pleased. We have this wonderful voice of God speaking truth and love over the Son. This is who you are. I love you. The remarkable thing is that God shouts this over Jesus' life at this point where Jesus has not done anything. Yes, he has made a few tables. He's a handyman. He's fixed up a few houses and probably done a lot more. But, but, he has made, but God shouts this over him for everyone to hear before he has done anything of substance, before he has done any of his miracles, before he has sacrificed anything, before any of his servanthood. The Father loves him. He is my beloved. Before he has done anything, my love is unconditional. Anyone who is a mother or father knows when they have a baby and, and you get this little person in front of you and it can't really communicate with you. It shouts and it cries and it laughs and it poos and it vomits. Uh, and, but it doesn't do very much, but yet you have this love for this child before it really can even communicate with you. Not because of anything this baby has done, but just because of who they are. You see, God's love precedes performance. 
God's love precedes performance. God's love is for us whilst we were still sinners. He meets us in the sin and the mess, in the murky waters. The Jordan River flowed into the Dead Sea. It was dead and full of all the rubbish and dirt and muck. And Jesus plunged into the Jordan River. He loves us right in the mess and the dirt. He loves us first. And this is repeated time and time again in Scripture. Daniel wasn't saved from the lion's den. He was saved right in the lion's den. Jonah wasn't saved from the whale. God met him right in the belly of the whale. If we think about Peter, he wasn't saved from the storm. He started to sink and was knee deep, and Jesus rescued him in the storm. I wasn't saved from my sin. I was saved knee deep right in my sin. Jesus meets us in our sin. His love precedes our performance. You cannot perform your way into the kingdom. You surrender your way into his presence. Prophet Malachi, Malachi 1 verse 2. Well, first one just says, when Israel doubts God's love. And then Malachi says, I have loved you, says the Lord. It's past tense. I have already loved you. It's not future depending. His love is a given. He has initiated it, sparked it, catalyzed it, choreographed it to come all together. And this baptism is the coronation of a king of love who once again will demonstrate that love, not with a baptism of water, but with a baptism of suffering for me and you. If God only loved us because we loved him first, well, then he would just be the God of transaction. You love me, I love you, we'll swap the deal. It's not who he is. God loved us first, and right in the midst of our mess, we get to know him as the God who transforms us the God of transformation, not transaction. This is why we love scripture, as David was talking about. This is why it's so important to get scripture in the hands of our young people and our old people all around this land, because whenever we start to understand what God has done for us and how he's made a way for us and scripture comes alive, our faith in who he is invigorates our journey and our story. I think these words from God the Father are the most beautiful, intimate, audacious, marvelous truths of the gospel. The whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point, that when the living God looks at us, when God looks at you and me here this morning in this church, picture the scene, he's looking at you. And when he looks at us, at everyone who knows him and follows him, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Christ Jesus. It sometimes seems impossible, it seems scandalous, and grace is scandalous, that God looks at us, that God looks at me and you, and he says, you are my dear, dear child. You are my beloved. I'm delighted with you still takes my breath away that this is our father this is what he says to you and me it takes my breath away that that i'm forgiven that that he loves me this way that i have jesus as a friend 
I'll finish with this, Romans 8, 15, 16. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves back to Egypt. You have not received that spirit. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his children, as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit and affirms that we are children of God, word and spirit. His spirit, the Holy Spirit, joins with my spirit to affirm that I am a child of God. His spirit joins with your spirit to affirm that you are his child. He delights in you. He speaks love over you. And you get to own him and know him. Word and spirit, proclamation and presence. Every one of us are invited into his story. Every one of us in this room. Your past does not determine your future. No one is disqualified. With Jesus, sin is never a full stop. It's never a dead end. So receive his invitation this morning. Receive his invitation to himself, who he is. This is our Jesus. It's incredible who he is and how God has set him up for us to know him. Say yes to him today for the first time. And I think there's people in here who maybe need to say yes to Jesus for the first time, but also for the 5,000th time. Say yes to Jesus this morning. Embrace his love this morning. Embrace who he is this morning. Come to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have done all that is required that we can have a relationship of love and friendship with you. So Father, we say yes to you again. Thank you for how you've joined up all the dots in our lives. Thank you for who you are, that you stepped into our life, that you initiated your love for me. Father, help us see that afresh this morning and embrace that afresh this morning. In your son's name we pray.